Chapter One of In the School Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Schoolroom by John S. Hart. Chapter One What is Teaching? In the first place, teaching is not simply telling. A class may be told a thing twenty times over, and yet not know it. Talking to a class is not necessarily teaching. I have known many teachers who were brimful of information, and were good talkers, and who discoursed to their classes with ready utterance a large part of the time allotted to instruction. Yet an examination of their classes showed little advancement in knowledge. There are several time-honored metaphors on this subject, which need to be received with some grains of allowance, if we would get at an exact idea of what teaching is. Chiseling the rude marble into the finished statue giving the impression of the seal upon the soft wax, pouring water into an empty vessel. All these comparisons lack one essential element of likeness. The mind is indeed, in one sense, empty, and needs to be filled. It is yielding, and needs to be impressed. It is rude, and needs polishing but it is not like the marble the wax or the vessel a passive recipient of external influences it is itself a living power it is acted upon only by stirring up its own activities the operative upon mind unlike the operative upon matter must have the active voluntary cooperation of that upon which he works the teacher is doing his work only so far as he gets work from the scholar the very essence and root of the work are in the scholar not in the teacher no one in fact in an important sense is taught at all except so far as he is self-taught the teacher may be useful as an auxiliary in causing this action on the part of the scholar, but the one indispensable vital thing in all learning is in the scholar himself. The old Romans, in their word education, educere, to draw out, seem to have come nearer to the true idea than any other people have done. The teacher is to draw out the resources of the pupil. Yet even this word comes short of the exact truth. The teacher must put in, as well as draw out. No process of mere pumping will draw out from a child's mind knowledge which is not there. All the power of the Socratic method, could it be applied by Socrates himself, would be unavailing to draw from a child's mind by mere questioning a knowledge for instance of chemical affinity of the solar system 
of the temperature of the Gulf Stream, of the doctrine of the resurrection. What, then, is teaching? Teaching is causing anyone to know. No one can be made to know a thing but by the act of his own powers, his own senses, his own memory, his own powers of reason, perception, and judgment must be exercised. The function of the teacher is to bring about this exercise of the pupil's faculties. The means to do this are infinite in variety. They should be varied according to the wants and the character of the individual to be taught. One needs to be told a thing. He learns most readily by the ear. Another needs to use his eyes. He must see a thing, either in the book or in nature. But neither eye, nor ear, nor any other sense or faculty will avail to the acquisition of knowledge unless the power of attention is cultivated. Attention, then, is the first act of power of the mind that must be roused. It is the very foundation of all progress in knowledge, and the means of awakening it constitute the first step in the educational art. When, by any means, positive knowledge, facts, are once in possession of the mind, something must next be done to prevent their slipping away. You may tell a class the history of a certain event, or you may give them a description of a certain place or person, or you may let them read it, and you may secure such a degree of attention that, at the time of the reading or the description, they shall have a fair, intelligible comprehension of what has been described or read. The facts are for the time actually in the possession of the mind. Now, if the mind was, according to the old notion, merely a vessel to be filled, the process would be complete. But mind is not an empty vessel, it's a living essence, with powers and processes of its own, and experience shows us that in the case of a class of undisciplined pupils, facts, even when fairly placed in the possession of the mind, often remain there about as long as the shadow of a passing cloud remains upon the landscape, and make about as much impression. The teacher must seek, then, not only to get knowledge into the mind, but to fix it there. In other words, the power of the memory must be strengthened. Teaching, then, most truly, and in every stage of it, is a strictly cooperative process. You cannot cause anyone to know by merely pouring out stores of knowledge in his hearing any more than you can make his body grow by spreading the contents of your market basket at his feet. You must rouse his power of attention that he may lay hold of and receive and make his own the knowledge you offer him. You must awaken and strengthen the power of memory within him, that he may retain what he receives, and thus grow in knowledge, as the body by a like process grows in strength and muscle. In other words, 
Learning, so far as the mind of the learner is concerned, is a growth. And teaching, so far as the teacher is concerned, is doing whatever is necessary to cause that growth. Let us proceed a step farther in that matter. One of the ancients observes that a lamp loses none of its own light by allowing another lamp to be lit from it. He uses the illustration to enforce the duty of liberality in imparting our knowledge to others. Knowledge, he says, unlike other treasures, is not diminished by giving. This illustration fails to express the whole truth. This imparting of knowledge to others not only does not impoverish the donor, but it actually increases his riches. Docendo discimus, by teaching we learn. A man grows in knowledge by the very act of communicating it. The reason for this is obvious. In order to communicate to the mind of another a thought which is in our own mind, we must give to the thought definite shape and form. We must handle it and pack it up for safe conveyance. Thus, the mere act of giving a thought expression in words fixes it more deeply in our own minds. Not only so, we can, in fact, very rarely be said to be in full possession of a thought ourselves, until by the tongue or the pen we have communicated it to somebody else. The expression of it, in some form, seems necessary to give it, even in our own minds, a definite shape and a lasting impression. A man who devotes himself to solitary reading and study, but never tries in any way to communicate his acquisitions to the world or to enforce his opinions upon others, rarely becomes a learned man. A great many confused, dreamy ideas no doubt float through the brain of such a man, but he has little exact and reliable knowledge. The truth is there is a sort of indolent, listless absorption of intellectual food that tends to idiocy. I knew a person once, a gentleman of wealth and leisure, who, having no taste for social intercourse and no material wants to be supplied, which might have required the active exercise of his powers, gave himself up entirely to solitary reading, as a sort of luxurious self-indulgence. He shut himself up in his room all day long, day after day, devouring one book after another, until he became almost idiotic by the process, and he finally died of softening of the brain. Had he been compelled to use his mental acquisitions in earning his bread, or had the love of Christ constrained him to use them in the instruction of the poor and the ignorant, he might have become not only a useful, but a learned man. We see a beautiful illustration of this doctrine in the case of Sabbath school teachers, and one reason why persons so engaged usually love their work 
is the benefit which they find in it for themselves. I speak here not of the spiritual, but of the intellectual benefit. By the process of teaching others, they are all the while learning. This advantage in their case is all the greater, because it advances them in a kind of knowledge in which, more than in any other kind of knowledge, men are wont to become passive and stationary. In ordinary worldly knowledge, our necessities make us active. The intercourse of business, and of pleasure even, make men keen. Makes men keen. On these subjects we are all the while bending thoughts to and fro. We are accustomed to give as well as take, and so we keep our intellectual armor bright, and our thoughts well defined. But in regard to growth in religious knowledge, we have a tendency to be mere passive recipients, like the young man just referred to. Sabbath after Sabbath, we hear good, instructive, orthodox discourses, but there is no active putting forth of our own powers in giving out what we thus take in. And so, we never make it effectually our own. The absorbing process goes on, and yet we make no growth. The quiescent audience is a sort of exhausted receiver, into which the stream from the pulpit is perennially playing, but never making it full. Let a man go back and ask himself, what actual scriptural knowledge have I gained by the sermons of the last six months. What, in fact, do I retain in my mind at this moment of the sermons I heard only a month ago? So far as the hearing of sermons is concerned, the Sabbath school teacher may perhaps be no better off than other hearers. But in regard to general growth in religious knowledge, he advances more rapidly than his fellow worshippers, because the exigencies of his class compel him to a state of mind the very opposite of this passive recipiency. He is obliged to be all the while not only learning, but putting his acquisitions into definite shape for use, and the very act of using these acquisitions in teaching a class fixes them in his own mind and makes them more surely his own. I have used this instance of the Sabbath school teacher because it enforces an important hint already given as to the mode of teaching. Some teachers, especially in Sabbath schools, seem to be ambitious to do a great deal of talking. The measure of their success, in their own eyes, is their ability to keep up a continued stream of talk for the greater part of the hour. This is, of course, better than the embarrassing silence sometimes seen, where neither teacher nor scholar has anything to say. But, at the best, it is only the pouring into the exhausted receiver enacted over again. 
we can never be reminded too often that there is no teaching except so far as there is active cooperation on the part of the learner. The mind receiving must reproduce and give back what it gets. This is the indispensable condition of making any knowledge really our own. The very best teaching I have ever seen has been where the teacher said comparatively little. The teacher was, of course, brimful of the subject. He could give the needed information at exactly the right point and in the right quantity. But for every word given by the teacher, there were many words of answering reproduction on the part of the scholars. Youthful minds under such tutelage grow apace. It is indeed a high and difficult achievement in the educational art to get young persons thus to bring forth their thoughts freely for examination and correction. A pleasant countenance and a gentle manner inviting and inspiring confidence have something to do with the matter. But whatever the means for accomplishing this end, the end itself is indispensable. The scholar's tongue must be unloosed, as well as the teacher's. The scholar's thoughts must be broached, as well as the teacher's. Indeed, the statement needs very little qualification or abatement that a scholar has learned nothing from us except what he has expressed to us again in words. The teacher who is accustomed to harangue his scholars with a continuous stream of words, no matter how full of weighty meaning his words may be, is yet deceiving himself if he thinks that his scholars are materially benefited by his intellectual activity, unless it is so guided as to awaken and exercise theirs. If, after a suitable period, he will honestly examine his scholars on the subjects on which he has himself been so productive, he will find that he has been only pouring water into a sieve. Teaching can never be this one-sided process. Of all the things we attempt, it is the one most essentially and necessarily a cooperative process. There must be the joint action of the teacher's mind and the scholar's mind. A teacher teaches at all, only so far as he causes this coactive energy of the pupil's mind. End of chapter 1